Well, please turn with me again to Acts chapter 1 and to those verses that we read together uh, a few moments ago from verses 9 to 11. Where is Jesus now at this moment, this evening? Well, he is in heaven. Is he in heaven bodily or as a spirit? The answer to that question is that he is present in heaven bodily. His is the only resurrected body in the universe at the moment. His resurrection, the Bible says, is the first fruits of our resurrection bodies. One day we will possess what he possesses. But for now, until he comes again, his is the only resurrection body. And that body is in heaven. That body that Mary hugged after the resurrection. That body that ate the piece of broiled fish. That body that has the marks of the nails in his wrists and in his ankles and the the mark of the spear thrust in his side. That body is the body that is in heaven this evening. The bodily ascension of Jesus into heaven is assumed throughout the New Testament. It's referenced in a number of different places, but it is only described, the ascension of Jesus is only described by Luke. He describes it in a more condensed form at the end of his gospel, and then again here in Acts chapter 1. It is tremendously important. But it's also described with characteristic restraint by the scriptures. Uh, That's something I think that signifies that this really is the word of God. If this was something that was being written by men, then it would be uh, exaggerated. Uh, It it would be... uh, uh, made much of, it would be uh, dramatized. The the, the restraint with which these things are described, uh, I think, is a mark of their authenticity, uh, that this is indeed the word of God and not the word of men. Let's just read again those uh, verses 9 to 11 of Acts chapter 1. When Jesus had said these things, As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Luke doesn't give us too many details because the fact 
of this event is much more important than how precisely it happened. But there are at least two things, I think, that the ascension here, as Luke records it, impresses upon us. First of all, Jesus has gone away. Jesus has gone away. Verse 9. Why was the ascension necessary? Well, of course, Jesus, having been resurrected, had to return to his Father in heaven. But why did it have to happen like this? I wonder if you ever thought about that. Why did his body have to rise up into the air and disappear? After all, it's not as if heaven is up there above the clouds, is it? You don't have to go up into the clouds and through the clouds to get to heaven because it's not a place that you can ever get to by traveling in the first place. Maybe you're familiar with the comment of the first man in space, the Soviet astronaut Yuri Gagarin. After he went up in his rocket through the clouds and into uh, space, breaking free of the earth's atmosphere, his comment was, I see no God. As if that settled the matter once and for all. You see, God doesn't exist because he's not up here. As if you could get to heaven in a space rocket. You can't, no matter how far or how fast you travel. Heaven isn't up there, just on the other side of the clouds. There was no need for Jesus to get to heaven by rising into the air. On the 40th day after his resurrection, he could simply have said goodbye to his disciples and vanished in front of their eyes and been transported immediately into heaven. Or he could have left them, said goodbye, and then ascended into heaven later on. Why does it happen like this? Well, surely it's a way of making crystal clear to the disciples that Jesus is no longer on earth, but that he is in heaven. This is something Luke seems to want to emphasize in his language. Four times in verses 10 and 11, you have that phrase, into heaven, into heaven, into heaven, into heaven. There are three references in this chapter to his being taken up in verse 2 and verse 9 and verse 11. Luke wants to make very clear to his readers, just as the Lord seems to want to make very clear to the disciples, that Jesus has really left. Now, why should that be so important? Why is it so important that the disciples understand that Jesus really has left? For 40 days since the resurrection, He's been appearing and disappearing. And perhaps the disciples thought, or perhaps they hoped, 
that this would continue indefinitely to be the case. That Jesus would always be there, or at least around the place somewhere. And they need to understand, they need to know that there are not going to be any more resurrection appearances on earth ever again. They need to understand that this temporary period is over. And that the next time Jesus appears on earth, it will be at the end of history. If they weren't clear about this, it would be a terrible temptation, wouldn't it? Almost a torment to go looking for Jesus. Especially when a crisis arose in the church as crises did arise in the church. You could imagine the disciples saying to one another, he could be here somewhere. We just need to go and find him. Can you imagine what a distraction that would be for the church? It's a little bit like a parent leaving their child to school for the first time. Some of us know what that's like. It's very, very hard for the child to settle while the parent is still around because there's always the possibility that they can go home with mummy or daddy. But once they see mummy or daddy walking out the door and driving away and leaving the premises, then, however hard it may be, and it can be hard for some children, at least then they can start to focus on settling down. They can accept the fact that they are here and they have to make the best of it. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why Jesus ascends bodily as he does. So that the disciples get it. He's gone. And and in a sense, we're on our own here now. And we need to get on with things. Remember what happened after Elijah was taken up into heaven. Elisha was the only one who witnessed it. Elijah's other disciples didn't see Elijah being taken up in the chariots of fire. And so we read in 2 Kings 2, 16 to 18, that the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And Elisha said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent, therefore, fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Fifty men wasted three whole days for nothing. Three days that could have been spent doing any number of far more useful, fruitful things. But they just couldn't let go of the thought that perhaps Elijah might still be somewhere on the earth. Elisha didn't have any such notions. He said, there's no point Don't go looking for Elijah. Don't waste your time. Why did he say that? Was it because Elisha didn't care about Elijah? 
Did he not love Elijah as much as the other disciples did? Not at all. It was because he had seen Elijah being taken up from the earth into heaven. And he was able to accept the situation. Elijah isn't here anymore. We're not going to see him again. We need to move on. And if the disciples hadn't seen Jesus ascending bodily up from the earth into another realm, it's not hard to imagine the devil getting them obsessed with the idea that perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon a mountain or into some valley. I don't think that's ridiculous to think, is it? Just think how untold thousands of men in the Middle Ages wasted the best years of their lives searching for the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus used in the Last Supper. If that's what the simple cup of Jesus could do, imagine what the thought that the man Jesus is still actually alive somewhere on the earth. Imagine what that thought could do to people. If the disciples weren't clear about this, they would always be in a state of limbo, wouldn't they? Hanging on, waiting for the next appearance of Jesus. For 40 days he's been coming and going, and unless there was a definitive once for all final departure that was different in kind from all the others it would be very hard for the disciples not to be expecting Jesus to walk through the door or appear in their midst at any moment and also if they're not clear on this if they're not clear that Jesus bodily has ascended alive into heaven. How could they know that he was still alive? After all, Jesus had died before on the cross. If they hadn't seen him go up alive into heaven, how could they be sure that he hadn't died again? Maybe he'd walked around a corner, if he had walked around a corner and vanished How could they be sure that he hadn't been assassinated by some enemy that was lurking in the corner? Or how could they be sure that he hadn't fallen off a cliff or got sick and died in some lonely Judean wilderness? But because they'd seen him alive, bodily ascend into heaven, they could be sure that he really was still alive But the most important thing about Jesus going away is where he went. Not so much how he went, but where he went. Where he is today and what he is doing. Because the reason that Jesus is lifted up from the earth and taken into heaven is so that he can reign as the king over all the universe. That's what we're witnessing here in these verses. It is the exaltation and the coronation of King Jesus. 
And that's what the little detail in verse 9 points to. It says, you notice in verse 9, that a cloud took him out of their sight. A cloud took him out of their sight. It's easy to miss the significance of that. It's not telling us, I think, just that it was a cloudy day and Jesus, as he went up and up and up, went into the clouds and he was obscured. Their view of him was obscured by the clouds. A little bit like if you see a plane uh, taking off on just about any day in uh, Newtonards from the, from the uh, air club, from the flying club. It gets to a certain height and then, of course, it's always cloudy and the, the, the clouds hide the plane from view. I don't think that's what Luke is saying here in verse 9. The language suggests more than that. It's not that the cloud hid him from their sight. It says that the cloud took him out of their sight. The cloud actually took him away. It's as if the cloud is the means of transportation. A little bit like a wealthy businessman is taken away by a limo or by a personal helicopter. Some people travel by train, some in private cars. The ascending son of man, he travels by cloud. That's what verse 9 seems to be saying. And it's the fulfillment of a prophecy in the Old Testament. Daniel 7 verse 13. Behold, With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy in Daniel. The clouds of heaven conveying King Jesus into the presence of the ancient of days where he has given dominion and glory and a kingdom. The risen Jesus has ascended into heaven and he has sat down at the right hand of God just as scripture said he would That's what's being fulfilled here. It's not just that heaven is his address, that that, that's where he is now. Heaven is his throne room, his headquarters. He is in heaven because he is alive and because he is active and he's reigning over the universe for the sake of the church, pouring out his spirit on the church, as we read in the very next chapter working all things for good, interceding for his people. Peter is able to put all of this together after the Spirit comes. Just look at what it says in chapter 2, verses 33 to 36. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, 
But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2 verse 20. God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things for the church. Or 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It is the fulfillment of Daniel 7, verse 13. The Son of Man being conveyed into the presence of the Ancient of Days and given all rule and authority. All of this would have been much harder for the disciples to believe if they hadn't seen Jesus rise. It wouldn't have been impossible for them to believe, but it would have been much harder. And so God, in his wisdom, in his kindness, he ordained that his disciples would see with their own eyes the living body of the Lord Jesus rising up into heaven. Jesus has really left. Jesus has gone away. His body is no longer in the world, not because it has ceased to exist, but because it's in heaven, because it is seated on the throne, reigning over all things at the right hand of God. We didn't see it with our own eyes, but we see it through the disciples' eyes here in Luke. And it's a tremendous comfort for us, isn't it? Such a reassurance as we go about the work here on earth that he has left for us to do. The universe, every molecule, every detail, every thread, every circumstance, as we thought this morning, it's under his supervision, his control. Wherever you go this week, whatever you do, no matter what challenges confront you, Jesus is in heaven and he is reigning at the right hand of God over all things for your good. Jesus has gone away to rule all things. And then the second thing, uh, more briefly, that we see here is that Jesus is coming back. Jesus has gone away and Jesus is coming back, verses 10 and 11. After Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples are left gazing into heaven. And the word that Luke uses there is a very strong word for gazing. Uh, you, you could translate it, they were transfixed. And no wonder this was a very, very unusual event. 
Something like this has only ever happened twice before in the history of the world. Uh, Once with Enoch and again with Elijah, although of course neither of those men were resurrected. Of course the disciples are gazing into heaven. But they need to have their eyes refocused. They need to have their gaze redirected. And so we're told, uh, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. This word behold signals a very sudden, unexpected appearance. Angels appear at key moments in Luke and in Acts, usually to give direction to someone. And these angels ask a question of the disciples, uh, a question that has a, a mild tone of rebuke in it. Why do you stand looking into heaven? I don't know about you, but I always thought that question seemed a little bit unfair on the disciples. I mean, surely the answer is pretty obvious. The Lord Jesus Christ has just risen bodily from the earth into the sky to be conveyed by a cloud into heaven. Would you not be gazing heavenward with your mouth wide open if you had been there? But it, it, it seems that the disciples are in danger of getting stuck here. That's the problem. They need to move on. Perhaps they're standing gazing into heaven because they're expecting that Jesus is going to come straight back. That's entirely possible, if not probable. They're still not quite clear about the timing of the coming of the kingdom. You remember the question in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still expecting, they're still hoping that things are going to happen immediately. They can't see Jesus now. He's been taken away from their sight by the cloud into heaven. But maybe they're, they're hoping and thinking that Jesus is just on the other side of the clouds in heaven, gathering an angelic army together. And any second now, he's going to burst through the clouds with these uh, legions of angels in his train. That's the kind of Messiah that they had been brought up to expect. Uh, And old habits of thinking die hard. And so the angels appear and tell them you've got to stop staring at the sky. If Jesus were coming back immediately, or if Jesus were coming back later on that afternoon, well then it would make perfect sense to stay and watch But he's not. Not yet. And in the meantime, there's work to do. So get on with it. That's what the disciples are being told here. Stop looking into heaven when Jesus has just told you that you're to go to the ends of the earth. Forget about the sky and look to the world here below. Don't get distracted from the work that you're meant to be doing. Verse 8, 
You will receive power, Jesus had told them, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Syria, Africa, Europe, Asia, Australia, the Americas, they're all waiting. And you can't do this work that Jesus has given you if you're stuck here sky-gazing. The angels make it clear that Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. Not immediately. Not anytime soon. Not if all of this needs to be done before he comes. But he is coming back. He will return. And they tell the disciples how he will return. In the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The second coming of Jesus, in other words, will not be anything like the first coming. He's not going to be born in obscurity as a baby in a manger. No, he's going to return as a man, as the risen, reigning Lord that you've just watched ascend into heaven. He's going to return in the clouds, in glory. He's going to return visibly. He's going to return unmistakably, just in the same way as he ascended into heaven. And this fact of Jesus' return is meant to spur the disciples on to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's the point, isn't it, of so many of the parables that Jesus told. The master has gone away, but he's coming back again. And there will be a day of reckoning. And the servants need to be ready for that day because they're going to have to give an account of how they have responded to their master's commission. And friends, it's the same application for us today as it was for the disciples then. Jesus has left the earth and he has given us work to do until he returns. Don't get distracted. Get on with it. I wonder how many of us are staring into heaven when we ought to be going out on the earth and being Christ's witnesses. Certainly a temptation for some Christians, isn't it, who are preoccupied, if not obsessed, with speculation about the end times. And all they ever seem to think about or read about or talk about is the second coming of Christ. They're literally, in fact, staring at the sky. Uh, There's a camera that is trained constantly on the Mount of Olives. You can log in. Uh, I did it just before coming out, just to not to see what was happening, but just to check that this was true and I hadn't imagined it. There is a camera, a webcam, constantly watching the Mount of Olives so that you can see Jesus returning as he left. There are people, and that's what they do. They just watch the skies, waiting for Christ's return. It's a temptation. Maybe this is more of a temptation for us here this evening. It's a temptation for Christians who care about theology and reading and study 
we can get preoccupied with gazing up into heaven, as it were. We can get preoccupied with extremely fine theological distinctions and obscure discussions about doctrinal niceties and lose sight of the work that the Lord Jesus has commanded us to do. Uh, A Cambridge professor was once asked to preach a sermon to a group of uh, college servants, uh, people of, of very little education. And he began Uh, his sermon with these words. The ontological argument for the existence of God, largely due to Teutonic influence, has all but been removed from the panoply of Christian apologetic. Now, that's true so far as it goes, but absolutely no use whatsoever to the people that he was preaching to. Uh, Now, perhaps you would never, ever allow a sentence like that to come from your lips, but is it possible that we can give the impression that the things that really matter are are these very, very abstract, uh, obscure theological things when we're commanded to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, making disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has taught. How important is practical godliness, living a holy life, serving one another in the church, loving one another? Are these the things that matter most to us? I wonder, have you got distracted? Have you got distracted as a church from the work of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. As we pray, how much are we praying for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth? When it comes to mission, there really only are two options for each one of us. Either we send or we go. And if we can't go, then it's our job to send, to give to the work of mission, to support it with our prayers, our earnest prayers, to do all that we can to encourage those who are going to be involved, as I know this congregation is, in local evangelism. Are there people in your life who need to hear the gospel? Members of your own family, perhaps? Friends? Workmates? schoolmates, neighbors. The angels here warn us that the clock is ticking. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when that could be. Don't put it off. So Jesus has gone away. He is in heaven at this moment, reigning over the universe for the church And so we're to get on with the work that he has given us to do in the strength that he gives. And Jesus is coming back in the same way that the disciples saw him leave. We don't know the day or the hour when he's going to return. 
And so we need to make sure that we're ready, that we're faithfully, earnestly, diligently, consistently doing the work that he has given us to do. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Amen.